All right, welcome everybody to episode 26, Pluripotency Network. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannat. And this is the Stem Cell Podcast. What up, Yos? Hey, what's up, my man? I'm excited to have uh, Dr. Austin Smith on today. Yeah, big, yeah. big time. Yeah, we caught ourselves a big fish this time. Do- we got a big fish. Yeah, not to say that we're not going to go on to uh, interview, say, a graduate student or anything like that. But today we've got a big professor on. He's actually a, a friend of mine, somebody who I met through the Neuro Stem Cell Collaboration overseas. Uh with the Europeans, um, and he's over at Cambridge in the UK, and uh, he's really, uh, really one of the gods of uh, <laughs> pluripotency, if you will. So, um, yeah, he's kind of a big deal, and he is a uh, pluripotency is one of the key uh, defining factors, so the, 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 like the hallmark, really, of uh, the embryonic stem cell or the induced pluripotent stem cell. Its name is in the title. So, we'll talk to him about uh, his work on pluripotency and what it means, and 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 uh you know see his take on on things in the field so that that that'll be uh towards the end of the show we're excited for that um any announcements? That I think it's pretty much, you know, by the time this airs, uh, it's pretty much buttoned up that we, uh, the Stem Cell Podcast will now be uh, the official podcast of the International Society for Stem Cell Research, the ISSCR. So we're really excited about that. Uh, it's going to get us, uh, the, the podcast, a lot more exposure and help us to get our voices heard by, by more people in the field. So uh, we're really uh, we're thankful for them to partner with us. And uh, I think it's going to be a, a, a great, for, uh, great for both. Yeah, so you guys win, should win. check them out, ISSCR.org, if you haven't been there, and see what they got going on. Yeah, win-win uh, situation. Uh, so I guess that's it for announcements, right? StemCellPodcast.com? Yeah, I, I think so. Sorry, go ahead, man. Give them the, give them the website. Yeah, StemCellPodcast.com. We're on Twitter and Facebook. We have a like page. And uh, what else do we have out there? We got the only thing I would say is I put it out there. Um, we would like to get grad students on the show. I got two. I put it on Twitter, and I got two responses, only two. And I know we got more people out there. Ooh, we I really, got- I really would like to get three or four grad students who want to do a show. We're going to have them do maybe 10, 15-minute spots just to talk about their life as a grad student. So uh, please send in your. Uh, Please get us on Twitter or email stemcellpodcast at gmail dot com. And if you're willing to come on the show and talk about your stem, your your grad student experience, it doesn't necessarily have to be in stem cell biology. Just want to talk about, want to give grad students some credit because uh, they're the ones in there doing all the work, uh, not all the work, but a lot of the work, and uh, want to give them some uh, some credit. So get get at us on social media or email, and we'll get you on the show. With that. I think Yost is going to kick off the roundup. Uh, go for it, man. Yeah. So there. What's our favorite journal? Penis. Yes, yeah, so uh, there was a penis study showing that clostridium and not bacteriodes can reduce sensitivity. <laughs> yeah, these are uh, bacterial names. So uh, can uh, reduce sensitization to food allergens via causing. So the mic the bio, uh, microbiome uh, is uh, can assen- essentially uh, reduce sensitization to food allergens via uh, the innate immune cells, uh, causing them to produce high levels of IL interleukin twenty two, uh, which prevents allergens from entering the bloodstream. So uh, you know some people uh, that have allergens may. You want to check that out um allergies well, another penis study showing that humans develop like 
uh, I didn't know this, that uh, we develop at more like a lizard pace uh, because the brain, uh, basically our brains are like sucking up so much energy that the rest of the body doesn't develop. So we develop more like lizards than other mammals do because our brains are so active at the four to five year old uh, stage that it uses twice as much glucose as an adult. So the five-year-old wow. brain, yeah, it dominates metabolism. That makes sense. Yeah, so they use PET and MRI, and they showed that the four-year-old brain uses 66% of what the rest of the body uses, or 40% of total energy expenditure. So it's just basically sucking all the air out of the room, that, that uh, brain uh, of the four- or five-year-old. So uh, that's why we don't develop, the rest of the body doesn't develop like other mammals. Uh, do. So uh, you can find that in PNAS. There was a nature cell biology study uh, where they, I don't know if you saw this, for the, they uh, produced the a thymus inside of mice by using FOXN1 transcription factor yes, to that. force fibroblasts into thymic epithelial cells uh, or ITEX induce thymus epithelial thymic epithelial cells um which is a type of thymic stroma and uh the, this this method supported uh efficient development of cd4 positive and cd8 positive t cells so an important uh immune system slash stem cell uh development and you can find that over in nature uh cell biology when they transplant these eye techs into mice they became full thymus so they were able to develop a full organ uh these eye techs so that was that's very important yeah uh, there was an advanced optical material study where they create the first uh, transparent luminescent solar concentrator. So in the future, you can imagine like a window that you're looking out of, but that window is not just a window. It's actually taking uh, sunlight and converting it to energy, which is uh, a cool finding. So basically, these uh, solar panels, uh, these clear ones, convert uh, ultraviolet and near infrared into infrared and this is channeled to the edge of the glass window and then uh where there's these strips of photovoltaic voltaic uh cells and uh basically it's able to convert the light into energy uh previous ones had done this before but they were never clear so they had this sort of stained glass effect now the conversion's only about one percent but uh you know for other uh non transparent luminescent uh solar concentrators it's about seven percent so and your typical solar panel is about 15 percent uh efficient so you know one percent's not quite there but at least it's clear so um that's a cool study i i i imagine a future where we're able to convert windows into solar generators which would be cool uh, nature geoscience uh, paper study uh, showing that uh, the discovery of methane gas bubbling from the sea floor off the coast of the U.S. Uh, they found 570 locations from North Carolina to Massachusetts. And it's probably been going on for at least a thousand years. So watch out for those methane bubbles, uh, which is are those from fi- are those fish farts or is that yeah uh, yeah it's uh, more like earth fish farts. <laughs> it's the earth uh, really. <laughs> earth it, farts? It's important because methane 
methane's a very potent. I think it's like twenty times the amount of CO two uh, in terms of uh, as a heat trapping gas. So methane, wow. watch out for methane. Um, there was a science article where uh, basically I, I don't know if you know this. That so you know how red blood cells don't have a nucleus. Uh, they just sort of like these uh, you know iron binding vesicles. Yeah. So the plant cells have a similar cell that doesn't have a nucleus, and they're called sieve or sieve element cells. And this science article was the first to watch the self destruction of the nucleus in these plant cells that transport nutrients. Uh, so I uh, thought that was a cool uh, finding. I don't know if you saw this, uh, the ALS ice bucket challenges everywhere. It's dominating my Facebook news feed. Yeah, I was going to talk about that in the in my segment. I know I saw it. It's cool. I, I just got challenged. I'm going to do mine today. Okay, awesome. Well, they basically were able to, oh, it's almost $100 million in like less than a month. But uh, I don't know if you saw the uh, Ohio Catholic Dioceses and Pam Pamela Anderson are against it because they, well, the diocese is against the stem cell research aspect of ALS uh, research, and Pam Anderson and other uh, PETA members are against the ALS ice bucket challenge because they we do animal testing to, uh, you know, find therapies for uh, ALS. So uh, I don't know. Uh, just yeah, I'll give you my take there. in two minutes yeah. when I get to mine. I got a little story on that, too. <laughs> okay, back to the more <laughs> traditional roundup. There was a neuron study showing that children and adolescents with autism have a surplus of synapses. So too much of a good thing can be bad, as we know, in the brain. And uh, this excess is due to a slowdown in the normal brain pruning uh, during development. And they show that rapamycin can restore normal synaptic pruning and improve autistic-like behaviors in their mouth model uh, and the researchers trace the pruning defect uh, to uh, mTOR which rapamycin targets uh, when overactive in these brain cells uh, they basically lose their ability to uh, prune essentially so you can find that over a neuron Cool. Uh, there was a PLOS one study showing that uh, how uh, lizards are able to regrow their tails. Uh, they nailed it down to 326 genes that are active in certain spots, and that cell division was found in distinct spots of the muscle cartilage, spinal cord, and skin. And it takes about 60 days, but these uh, genes, a lot of them are also present in humans, so maybe there'll be some uh, regenerative uh you know, correlation there in humans as well. Um, I don't know if you saw there was a science discovery of SDSJ0018-0939. This is an ancient star about a thousand light years from Earth with low abundance of heavy elements. And basically, uh, so it doesn't have heavy elements like metals as opposed to helium and hydrogen. And so it's uh, basically a descendant of low mass first generation stars that contain large amounts of carbon and other light elements. So this star is up to 13 billion years old and concerning the universe is about 13.8 billion years uh, old. This is an ancient... Uh, wow. th- yeah, yeah. So it's a cool s- discovery you can find. I love stuff about stars. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, there was a nature study showing that nearly 4,000 species of microbes inhabit Lake Wellens, which is this underground uh, lake in West Antarctica. It's uh, 800 meters below uh, the ice shelf. And considering it hasn't seen light in millions of years, it's fascinating. 
that these uh, microbes exist deep below the ice shelf. Um, there was a brain study showing that inhibitory neurons in the ventral lateral preoptic nucleus in rats and intermediate nucleus act as the sleep switch. And uh, they use galanin to stain these inhibitory neurons. And they show that the loss of these cells in that region are probably what leads to insomnia in the elderly. Wow. Yeah, so you can find that Damn. in brain. Uh, a couple of science translational medicine studies uh, showing that the injection of TBX-18 can reprogram heart cells in the pig to uh, pacemaker cells. And this is within 24 hours. They were, were able to convert uh, cells in the heart into pacemaker cells after uh, inducing infarction uh, in the in the pig. So uh, the powerful uh, transcription factor that can make pacemaker cells in vivo. Um, as well as in science translational medicine, they found that a modified version of cloistrum novi, which is found in soil, can produce a strong and pre uh, precisely targeted anti-tumor response in rats, dogs, and humans. Uh, the, this this bacteria survives uh, in it thrives in oxygen poor environments and therefore targets oxygen starved cells deep within tumors. So uh, you can find that in science translational medicine. And uh, uh, how am I doing on time? I think we're kind of low on time. Should, so, yeah, we, yeah, I'm going to wrap should, it up there. Even though I have about three more studies, I'm just going to end it there. We could put up? them up online. Remember, everything's up on stemcellpodcast.com. You can get yeah. the links. Yeah. Uh, cool, man. Um, so uh, I'm just, I just saw this. Sorry, it has nothing to do with science. But did you know that Prince announced he'll be releasing two albums of new, entirely new material on September 30th? Well, you know, so I for all you Prince, Prince fans I, out I was, there, diamonds and pearls. You yeah, can, uh, you can I was get, you, get that. Yeah, I, I, we should probably put up a picture of me dressed as Prince for Halloween. That was purple awesome, rain by Prince. the way. Yosef did an amazing Prince Halloween. <laughs> purple. Anyway, rain. so if you like Prince, you can get his new stuff <laughs> September thirtieth. Um, I saw this, Yosef. I, I didn't know if you were going to touch on it, but uh, the NIH issued uh, a genomic data sharing policy. So you know, in the age of big data that we're in, uh, everyone's. You know, a lot of people are generating tons of genomic data, so they're trying to standardize how it's shared and accessed, which I think is a good idea. Good. Um, so the, you can find that on uh, the NIH website. We'll put the link up, and it, it, it's, a, it's a lengthy document, but they're explaining how they're going to uh, do that. Um, all right, so I'll touch on some stem cell stuff. Um, this, should, uh, this, is, this is world breaking news. In Japan, an official effort to replicate stem cells comes up empty. So this is now an internal team at Riken who, uh, in Japan, that formed a group that was going to test uh, STAP themselves. Uh, released their initial report that they couldn't get it to work. So, uh, you know, I don't know how long we're going to keep beating a dead horse here. It, stap don't work. Let's yeah. just uh, stop putting it in the news. Yeah. Um, the Ice Bucket Challenge I was going to talk about, Yost talked about, but I'm going to give you my take on it. I think it's fantastic. They were able to raise $100 million and bring not only the, the, the money, but they're able to bring awareness to a disease uh, that's, that's awful, uh, that people are dying young and it's just it's, it's a terrible way to to to, to die yeah, yeah, it's just an awful disease you know, you know i heard a fascinating conversation about this where they were saying uh als is sort of like the perfect disease for this because there's so much mystery it's not like aids where there's a stigma right. if it were the aids right. ice bucket challenge it probably wouldn't have worked as well but the, the the awareness and sort of the you know it's 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 overall a great thing i think um so it's a it's a fantastic thing and that's why we, people are trying to throw hot water on the 
ice bar challenge like Pamela Anderson of all people. Yeah, yeah. But so the one other thing I also brought up the the Catholic movement came out against it. You know, it's a very pro life issue. So there was this there was this anti abortion activist Lila Rose, and she came out and said that the ice bucket challenge contributes to the uh, culture of death. Uh, Are you so, um, or something ridiculous like that. I, I'm trying to find the exact uh, exact statement that she said, but um, it, it's just you know basically it's it's you know people who are are pro life and anti abortion say well th- some of this money's funding stems embryonic stem cell research and therefore you're contributing to the you know unapologetically to the culture of death. And so all I'm going to say about it is this: you know the people will make the arguments about abortion. Uh, and stem cells and things like this. It's a philo- I was saying to Joseph, it's a philosophical argument when human life begins. I mean, you can debate that forever because really it's 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 just a philosophical debate. But what's not philosophical is that humans that I know are human and living are dying of this disease and others terribly. And stem cells can help, and it could possibly fix and cure it. So while you want to debate philosophically over when life life is real, I can tell you when life is real by looking at a human dying. And so uh, I think we should stop focusing on the debate and start putting our money towards something that's going to help these people uh, in their terrible state. So that's just my two two pieces. And if, if anyone would like to come on and debate this with us, we're more than happy to entertain them. So uh, you can email us at stemcellpodcast.gmail.com. Yeah, we'll have a, we'll have a um, modern-day monkey scopes trial on the Stem Cell Podcast. Yeah, exactly. So this is, uh, let's see, Canadian doctors use stem cells to treat stiff person syndrome. You heard of this thing? Never heard of stiff person So this is in JAMA Neurology. Apparently, it's like a disease where um, it's like the autoimmune system goes wacky and it like attacks the brain and causes patients to get episodes of stiffness in the muscles and painful muscle spasms. Anyone ever had muscle spasms? They could be incredibly painful. Uh, And they could be brought on by stress or loud noise or emotional distress. And so this is a report saying that um, bone marrow transplantation, what they'll do is they'll obliterate or basically knock out your immune system by uh, high-dose radiation. And then they try to restore it using uh, bone marrow transplantation. They say that this method can uh, have some benefits to some of these patients. So that's in JAMA Neurology. I never heard of stiff person syndrome. Um, there's a uh, stem cell trial for spinal cord injuries has been cleared by the FDA. FDA. This is a uh, Asterius Biotherapeutics of Menlo Park. Um, they were approved by the FDA to go forward with a 13-person safety study of a so-called OPC cells. These are the famous Geron OPC cells technology yes, that was yes. kind of scrapped up. So they got clearance, a 13-person safety uh, trial to see if... Uh, you know, these are derived from embryonic stem cells, and uh, so they're going to just, you know, the first step is safe to safety to see if they're safe, and then from there they'll reevaluate, see if they're efficacious, and uh, you know, hopefully have a, a possible therapy spinal cord injury. Uh, so that's cool. I was reading there's more main mainstream press about rogue stem cell therapies or you know stem cell tourism. So I was reading this article called "Rogue Stem Cell Therapy Operators Charging Thousands for Ineffective Treatments." So the interesting thing about this is that you can people are paying up to seventy five to a hundred thousand dollars for these treatments that are are not scientifically supported, and they're saying that there are these loopholes in like the legislation in these countries that doctors are legally allowed to treat patients both here and overseas. Here being Australia, I believe that's where uh, uh, um, this is talking about. Um, 
uh, with their own stem cells, even if the treatments are on not or you know is unsafe or not been proven to be effective, and they use testimonials from patients who like a, a couple weeks out say that they are much better, but nothing really long term or or it, it, and and then they go on. They have uh, Irv Weissman on here. He says you should be careful of Doctor Google. You know, if you like Google stem cells, like he says two hundred, you know, stem cell therapies you can find out there. It's just urging people to be careful. On the other side to that, you can also you can't really blame someone who's dying for getting desperate and seeking something like this. So I guess that they're saying it's just please use caution before you spend your life savings or sell your house for something that's just not proven. Because if it was proven, uh, you would see it in a lot more places. So just be careful uh, uh, for everyone out there. Uh, this was a study, I uh, believe it was Nature Cell Bio, I'm not sure. Uh, boron, 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 I think of happy, uh, Billy Madison every time I hear boron. Mm. Boron facilitates stem cell growth and development in corn. So apparently like boron deficiency is one of the most widespread causes of reduced crop yield. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Mm. Um, it's saying that you, the like eastern half of Missouri and the eastern half of the U.S. are plagued by boron deficient soil. And then corn and soybean farmers are required to supplement with boron. But no researchers at the University of Missouri found plays an integral role in the development and reproduction of corn plants. And they found out that um, it affects the stem cells in the in the plants so um you know it boron deficiency was causing them to stop growing and it's really because it has a problem it, it affects the meri stems or the stem cells of the plants i thought that was cool stem cells and corn yep uh yost talked about the thymus paper so i won't talk about that uh systematic identification of culture conditions for induction and maintenance of naive human pluripotency out of the yanish lab thorold thonans I believe him is. We met him at uh, ISSCR. Remember, Yos? Yeah, good luck with that uh, last name. He was... Yeah, I know. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, Thor. I, I might have messed that up. Uh, I think he was going to come on the show. He wanted to wait till the paper was published. So it's published. So we'd like to have Thor come on the show and tell us about it. Since cell stem cell talks about ground state and factors that might induce it. We'll talk to Austin Smith about this paper a little bit later. Uh, another one in cell stem cell generation of multipotent induced neural crest by direct reprogramming of human postnatal fibroblasts. With a single transcription factor, that's out of our buddy Gab Song Lee's lab at John oh, yeah. Hopkins. Congrats, Gab Song. Congratulations. Uh, Neurocrest is very important, and uh, we're going to have him come on the show. I'm sure he'll come on and talk to us about why this is uh, important. He did a direct IN, if you will, a direct conversion of somatic cell to Neurocrest. That's in cell stem cell. And last, I'll end here. Targeting self renewal and high grade brain tumors leads to loss of brain tumor stem cells and prolonged survival. This is in cell stem cell. They, 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 they were using a brain tumor model, and they found a, a way to uh, identify the quiescent stem cell, if you brain tumor stem cell, if you will. And by targeting it, uh, they were able to uh, uh, you know, kind of get rid of the uh, uh, tumor and, and, and make it go long term. Everybody knows that we're trying to identify brain tumor stem cells because if you don't get tumor can persist and live on so this is a way they said you can identify those stem cells in brain tumor cells so that was a quick quick run through uh everything will be online but i think we should uh end right here okay chris why don't you bring on our guest all right yos today uh it's it's really uh, uh, a pleasure to have 
our guest, Dr. Austin Smith, Austin Smith, who is an internationally renowned stem cell researcher who uh, deserves a proper introduction. So I'm going to try to. Uh, Dr. Smith is a professor in the Department of Biochemistry and director of the Wellcome Trust Center for Stem Cell Stem Cell Research at the University of Cambridge, uh, where his lab's main objective, and he'll go into this in more depth, is to characterize the cellular molecular mechanisms governing the self renewal and differentiation. Uh, potential of uh, stem cells, embryonic stem cells in particular. Uh, Dr. Smith is, is, is world really recognized for his pioneering work on the biology of stem cells. And one example of uh, a seminal finding that him and his group had was back in the early 2000s. I remember this when I was a grad student, where his group was one of the first to functionally clone the gene Nanog and characterize it as a, as a critical regulator of embryonic stem cell pluripotency. And now Nanog is really one of the hallmarks in, in the world of pluripotency. Uh, his lab has subsequently gone on to publish numerous papers in the world of stem cells, uh, both embryonic and neural and such. Uh, in addition to his lab work, he is active in many different stem cell organizations, uh, including a uh, project coordinator for the, for the original Euro stem cell. Um, and I know that meeting, Yost, you're a big fan of. Yep. Uh, the deputy coordinator for ES Tools. He also sits on the board of the International Society for Stem Cell Research as a director. And he's a recipient of nu- numer- numerous awards, excuse me, including an MRC Research Professorship, election to the Royal Society of Edinburgh, and in 2010, the co-recipient of the Louis Jeannette Prize for Medicine. And his work in understanding those uh, molecular networks, which I love to look at charts of, a governing pluripotency led him to propose that a pluripotency, <clears throat> that a pluripotency ground state exists. We talk about this a lot in the show. And his latest paper in Science, I think it was in June, just published, describes an essential transcription factor program for naive Pluripotency. So with that, it's a pleasure for Yosef and I and the Stem Cell Podcast to welcome you to the show. Dr. Smith, welcome aboard. Well, it's good to be here. <laughs> Great. So, All right, so let's, let's yeah. start for the audience, just if you wouldn't mind, just giving a, a summary of your work, uh, maybe a little, uh, uh, you know, your, the stem cell work in past and present and, and where you where you're like to take your work in describing stem cells and their, and their you know, importance and potency, if you will. Yeah, okay. So... Perhaps a, uh, a bit different from uh, from many other scientists, I've, throughout my entire career as a researcher, only ever worked on one thing, which is pluripotency, because uh, when I was an undergraduate, um, I was lucky to be in one of the few places where people knew anything about pluripotency or even had this concept, and as soon as I heard about it, uh, it was just for me the most exciting, interesting thing. So that what I, that's what I've always worked on. And um, the reason for that is because uh, pluripotency is the the stage at, at which everything is is held within one cell. So it can make any kind of fate decision. And, and because we have the ability to keep cells in that state and to, to grow them in the laboratory, then in principle, we can take it apart and understand how it works. And then we can compare that to, to how these cells really function in the embryo. So it's, an, uh, it's both an incredibly interesting and fundamental biological um, uh, question, but it's also one that is experimentally tractable because we have these cells in the lab. 
so that was what I always wanted to to work on. And um, over the years, you know, piece by piece, and of course with um, contributions from from other uh, labs, then we've been able to to figure out what really makes these cells tick, starting with the the um, signals they need from outside the cell, factors uh, like leukemia inhibitory factor or LIF, and how those signals are transduced, um, and then identifying the, the core transcription factors, OCT4, NANOG, etc., um, so that we can begin to understand what makes these cells difficult, dif- different from any other kind of cell. And um, according, given that, I mean, I, we're going to call this episode the pluripotency network. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, so the, we need to, I guess, give the audience some background in terms of uh, mouse yeah. versus human and ground state or naive state. Uh, versus prime mm-hmm. state. Uh, we've talked about this before with Paul Tazar, but um, mm-hmm. th- th- this current science paper is really, I think, just unique in terms of uh, the approach. And um, before we get to the paper, maybe uh, you can describe some of the issues in terms of uh, human ground state and mouse ground state. Uh, oh well, that's very simple. I mean, currently <laughs> we don't have a human ground state. Yeah. Um, whereas in in the mouse, you know, this is 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 really pretty well uh, nailed down. Uh, um, and you know, so it's a big question whether it is um, going to be possible to get such uh, cells in such a state from human. Or from anything other than a mouse, um, and we don't have an answer to that right at this uh, point. But of course, the concept of a ground state implies that that we believe it should be possible and generic in all mammals. Um, but you know, it has to be done. Uh, can I can I just step in for a second? I I just want to can I ask and just speak to the importance of ground state as an idea. So, you know, I guess I, I think we've talked about this on the show. In in the lab and in the world of uh, stem cells, everybody's talking about how they can, they're using the pluripotent C or pluripotent stem cells as a tool to get derivatives, tissue derivatives that yeah. they can use to treat disease, right? So really the pluripotent cell is this, uh, uh, you know, it's just a means to an end, if you will. And so one argument is that what we have, this kind of epiblast-like cell, this not, not, not truly like the, not a ground state cell, it's not like a true blastocytic mm-hmm. cell, is, is okay for what we need, you know, in terms of regenerative medicine. Mm-hmm. It's, it's able to respond, we're able to coax it down different de- developmental lineages. And so one side would argue that. So can you, and, and from, Obviously, there's a biological importance to understanding ground state, of course. But can, I would love to hear it for, in, in your words. Why is it important to understand the ground state uh, pluripotency in, in the human system, uh, if you will? Um, so uh, it may not be important at all. I mean, if you just regard these cells as a means to an end, it really it might not matter. 
I think that's the point I was trying to make in the in the introduction. That's not where I'm coming from. What I'm interested in is the fundamental biology and understanding the biological principles here. Now, having said that, you know, were this um, uh, dis- distinction between uh, naive or ground state pluripotency and prime pluripotency comes from is is from from two things. Firstly, the 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 obvious difference between human and mouse embryonic stem cells, um, and then the um, development of epi stem cells by um, Paul Tizar and by the Peterson and Vallier lab, uh, which shows you quite definitively you can have at least two stable uh, stem cell populations derived from the, the mouse. So there are clearly different types, different phases of pluripotency. And actually, if if you study the mouse embryo, you'd know that was the case anyway. Right. So, so, so then, of course, it's from a, the biology point of view, it's interesting to know why do we only have one of these captured in culture in the human. Uh, and one reason why you might want to have uh, the earlier naive or ground state stages to be able to learn about things about early human development, which is currently completely uncharted. To get back to your question, specific question, if you're somebody who's only interested, as you say, as a means to an end, this may not matter, but equally it may matter. So what we know is that um, human ES cells or human iPS cells, uh, like epistem cells, are quite heterogeneous within the cultures and they behave differently from one another in different differentiation protocols. Now, by a combination of uh, uh, informed uh, experimentation as to what are the best drivers and also brute force, you can reduce some of that. But still, there are, there are differences that can be quite marked between cell lines. And we don't know at this point to what extent that is, or at least I don't know, to what extent that is because that is, uh, is as a result of genetic variability between humans uh, and to what extent it's because we have uh, a population of cells that are not really in a, in a pristine state because they've already uh, received uh, some developmental or epigenetic cues in the context of an embryo-derived human ES cell line or because they haven't um, completely uh, erased epigenetic instructions in the context of an iPS cell line. So... The, the idea that a human ground state cell might be uh, useful for these kind of a- applications is that in such a cell, you really will have a, a comprehensive epigenetic erasure, and therefore you will have uh, cells that are more um, uh, equivalent between cell populations, between derivations, between individuals, uh, and that uh, may be more amenable to developmental instructions to, to go down different, uh, uh, to adopt different fates. Um, that is a uh, uh, hypothesis. There is no uh, 
solid data that says it will really make a functional difference. I mean, we do know that these epigenetic features are very different between epistem cells and ES cells in the mouse, and we'd expect the same to be true in, in the human. But whether that really functionally matters for, for driving differentiation in vitro, we don't know, and that's, that's something that would be tested. Is that clear? Yes, it's, yeah, yes. Yeah. very clear. Also, I was um, I was actually looking back at your 2008 Nature paper, and um, the, you know the the development of three I the inhibit, inhibition mm-hmm. of pathways. Um, I was just wondering, do have you reached the point in your lab where you're culturing human ES with just small molecules? Because right now. Uh, people are, I guess, moving to E8 media and all these uh, defined factors. Um, it, it, I, in, in the past, traditionally, human ES cells were kept on mouse, embryonic fibroblast, and fed FGF2. But, you know, there's a slew of data going out there where you just basically inhibit certain pathways and you can maintain maintain human ES cells uh, with just small molecules. Is is uh, have we reached that point uh, where it's you know it, it's possible to get rid of recombinant proteins and just deliver small molecules to maintain the human ES state? Uh, I you know I I can't uh, really comment um, very directly uh, on that. What I see in the papers that the high profile papers that appear to be claiming that is that when you actually look in detail in those papers, people are using uh, just everything. You know, they still have KSR there, they have feeders, they have FGF. Um, but you only see that if you actually go drill into the methods of the paper. Right. The, the headline is, you know, they're using something like 2i. And you'll also see that they. They play with the concentrations of inhibitors, so they're not actually fully inhibiting the MEC mm-hmm. pathway. Which, so you know, I, I think what's out there at the moment is equal uh, to uh, to what we have in the mouse uh, system. But I should also say that in the mouse CS cell system, you know, when we when we publish the paper you're talking about originally with three inhibitors and then we refined it to two inhibitors um, and we, sh- we showed definitively uh, that you can culture mouse ES cells without uh, lift or activation of STAT3. Mm. But actually uh, what we also see unequivocally is that there's a positive uh, effect always of providing ES cells with the lift STAT3 signal mm-hmm. so um i would expect that in human as in mouse you will need some there will be a benefit to some positive signal and, and not simply to inhibiting pathways you know in this show we were talking about there was a paper that just came out i'm i'm, I'm sure you're obviously familiar from the yanish lab describing this um uh, identification of culture conditions, yeah. you know, for the induction of naive human pluripotency. Uh, so I don't know if you'd like to, to comment on that, but it seems that their approach, they, they did, a, the, you know, a chemical screen and uh, they, it's, this was like 5i or something, a bunch of yeah. inhibitors. And, and they, I think they do plus or minus combination, like you're saying, of growth factors like FGF and things, lift mm-hmm. and things like this. And they, they describe 
what they call a uh, uh, a framework for defining the mm-hmm. culture requirements. So that reads to me, and I haven't read the paper in depth, so I'm going to refrain from commenting on it in particularly. But it seems to me that the framework means that that's you know they're identifying some things that seem to be. Um, you know, possible, but I don't know if it's anything definitive. Again, I, I haven't read it, uh, so I, I, mm-hmm. but I, I'm, I guess the point is that now these these are coming out. These papers will come out now. I'm assuming and start to report ways that you can use inhibitors in combo with growth factors to 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 acquire this state, if you will. Um, yes, but then the then the, the the question becomes: so you know, how do you define that state? Uh, how do you know you've got anything interesting? Right. So, you know, what, what the papers prior to the recent uh, paper from uh, the Yanish lab, uh, really the only claim the other papers had to say they had any different was that they included a MAC inhibitor in the culture. Um, and, and as I say, uh, you know, they do that in conditions where they've got KSR or FGF that are activators of the pathway uh, and they... Uh, uh, at least in some of these cases, are using suboptimal concentrations of that inhibitor. So, so you know, you need something that's a bit more scientific than just saying we combine a bunch of inhibitors and factors together and, right. and the cells are still growing. So the interesting thing about the, the paper from the Yanish lab is that for the first time, they show that the cells that they culture in, in these conditions, which are still, to my mind, are somewhat contradictory but but nonetheless the cells have some interesting uh, properties in that they express the set of transcription factors that distinguish uh, naive pluripotent stem cells from primed pluripotent cells in the mouse and that is not true of any previous uh, study in, in human okay uh, transitioning so it, from, it's, yeah. it seems to be in the right kind of direction. Okay. And to transition to this science ahead, paper, Yosef. yeah, I want to transition to the, the paper at hand. So um, yeah. this this it's called Defying an Essential Transcription Factor Program for Naive Pluripotency. Um, so this is a science paper, came out, and um, it... it, it introduced to me a bunch of terms and, uh, you know, it's co- computational analyses that I'm not uh, familiar with, like mm-hmm. Boolean network formalism, uh, form- <laughs> uh, formalism and all these other terms that, you know, uh, are, are pretty cool, but it turned out to work out. So can, can you describe to in a sort of a lay audience uh, fashion how you went from uh, the basically cells and culture to computer modeling of networks. Um, just just sort of if you could give like an elevator conversation version of the paper. Yeah. yeah. So, so the, yeah, the, the problem we were facing is that, um, you know, as you guys know, uh, every week, uh, Cell stem cell or similar journals publish a paper saying, you know, there's a new pluripotency factor and there's a, you know, a whole new set of chip seek data. And, uh, and so you just end up with, you know, hundreds of factors, uh, and they're all supposed to be regulating one another and you get these herbal diagrams of how everything's supposed to work. And, uh, I just, I don't find this very, uh, helpful. Um, 
and our approach has always been you know the old-fashioned approach to go uh, methodically factor by factor and try to pinpoint the factors that are really important um, you know genes like nanog or opt4 and, and to demonstrate definitively that these are functionally important so that gives us a group of you know somewhere between 10 and 20 factors based on experiments that have been done in my lab or in other labs that the data I can really believe um, but still if you do the, the uh, look at the chip seek data you can still end up then with literally billions of ways these factors could interact because they, they will cross-regulate one another so the question that I was interested in was, you know, how, firstly, have we really got identified all of the factors that are important? Or, or to put it another way, are the factors that I think are important really the ones that do the job? And then secondly, how do they really talk to one another? What are the, the interconnections? So we... Um, or this was the really the question that I put to the people from Microsoft Research because they came they came to us actually uh, looking for a, uh, a collaboration and initially they wanted to do all kinds of fancy things to you know learn how to make a heart from an embryonic stem cell um, and model that and I said no let's let's just start with something really simple and something that that we know about. Um, and uh, so that was the question. Um, so wait, did just Bill Gates did we, Bill Gates give you a call and say, "Hey, I, I want to make a heart for No, us. no, not quite <laughs> like that. No, no. So they have no. It's it's one of the advantages of being in uh, in Cambridge that you know there are lots of interesting people around, and uh, that's Cambridge in the UK, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, one of the the groups that that's interesting here is Microsoft Research. So they're the like the research outstation of, of the company, and they do, they basically do pure research, although, of course, somehow the company will, will own anything they do. And they have one group there that works on biological problems, and mainly they work, it's headed by a guy called Stephen Emmett, and mainly they work on ecology and, you know, like uh, climate change and this kind of stuff. Yeah. But they were interested in getting into... Uh, developmental and stem cell biology and so that's why they they came to me and it took a little while to figure out you know because there's a language barrier there and it's just like you, you say you know when they talk to me i haven't a clue what they're talking about <laughs> yeah. but all, but also you know i can see when i talk to them they don't know what i'm talking about <laughs> right. so you have to you know that's the the most difficult part of getting these kind of things to work and that why they often don't work mm. But uh, they um, uh, they had a new postdoc, uh, and she came to see me, uh, and she's had a bit a bit of a biological background, and uh, one of my postdocs, uh, Graziano, was quite interested in uh, seeing what we could uh, extending what he'd been doing to a, a uh, into a modeling approach, and so basically they paired up, and the only reason this worked is because we had this iteration between the uh, experimentalist uh, and the the computational scientist, uh, so, and they worked very closely together over uh, a couple of years. 
Um, and we also then had, you know, what Microsoft had was the power of this uh, computational tool they developed. Um, so the, there's, there's nothing really radical in the, the modeling approach here. Boolean modeling is a standard technique. It's basically, it makes the assumption that everything is binary, on or off, mm -hmm. which is really a simplification. You know, in, in biologists would say, yeah, well, it's not as simple as that, but actually pretty much all the models that are out there are Boolean models. And again, that was our approach was, you know, of course, you could make this very, very complicated, but then you'll never get to the answer. Let's see how far we can get with the simplest uh, approach. And already, the, you know, you start off with the problem, even when you've stripped it down to say, okay, we're just going to start with 20 factors. You end up with something like two to the 45 possible solutions, some incredible number. So that's where the, this computational tool is very powerful because it's able to uh, formally screen all of the possible uh, models against a set of specifications that you set up, things that you know experimentally are true, so they must be satisfied. And so it can reduce this vast number to a manageable number, and it can tell us that actually uh, several of the factors that we should include are really not needed, um, but they're always needed, and that there are certain interactions that are always needed. Uh, and then when we go back and, and test, you know, does this make sense with knowledge that is out there, either data that, that we have or public data, public chip seek data, for example, mm -hmm. direct interactions, then we find there's a very good uh, correlation. And it, it, it makes, you know, what we end up with uh, makes sense to us and is consistent with prior knowledge. We're able to make uh, predictions about double knockouts. Uh, that are um, often, but not always, uh, correct. Um, and so we can have, you know, some confidence that this this model is uh, is is a reasonable approximation to uh, to how things actually work. So uh, you've narrowed it down to. There are also some predictions that it narrows things down. That's exactly the point. It's all about kind of narrowing it down and telling you how far you can get with this simple binary approach. Uh, there are some some predictions that are wrong that that we can go back and refine the model and uh, and make it better. Uh, and there's another group of predictions in one particular culture condition that actually we are not able to solve. Uh, and but that's the whole point of a model. Right. Uh, and, and so now we have to adjust one of the basic parameters in in the model. Um, and that's what we're in the process of doing now to see if we can improve that uh, predictive um, capacity. So I think what you know what's interesting about about this is is it's not you know the the language you have to use when you end up being stripped down to thousand words, which is what a science paper is, is it, it both makes the paper almost incomprehensible. <laughs> and it also means, you know, some of the statements are a bit, end up being a bit kind of um, overstated or, or simplistic. Um, they can't be as nuanced as, as biology really is. So, so actually, you know, we're, we're not saying this is the definitive uh, answer. What we're actually saying, and the, the reason that a 
I thought it was worth trying to get this paper into science is because I think now for the first time modeling can really bring something to biology um, because we have the right kind of uh, experimental systems where we can generate data and we can go backwards and forwards between between the models and experimental data. Yeah, I've you know, whereas that. in the past, models just told us what we already knew as biologists. Right, right. Now, now they can help, and we need it because the biology is is, is so complex that intuitively we can't understand, we can't readily understand it all, not in a meaningful way. Uh, intuitively, you know, we need some some uh, formal approach. So I, I I love the approach. In fact, and and I know we have to move on, Yos, but. I, if I wouldn't just, I, I really would just like to ask a selfish, selfish question, if I may. Now, um, and I, in so in our lab, you know, we're I, I we're, I'm working a lot with a mathematician now in mm-hmm. computational biologist because what we're trying to do is over neural development and the sequence of cortical development, trying to understand the temporal sequence of transcriptomic regulation. And so when you're trying to assess things over a dynamic time course and you're looking at big data change. There's so much data that gets generated, it's almost impossible to make any sense of it. So uh, working with mathematicians has been, you know, like you said, there's this language barrier. I don't understand what they're saying, and they don't really understand what I'm saying. But if you work hard enough together, you can come up with reasonable models and things that would actually make uh, good visual uh, you know, present visual ways you, you can look at the data that makes sense and try and try to get a, a, you know access to what's actually going on. My question to you is, and you have experience with this in this paper, um, how how do you how does one review a, a paper or work like this? You know, it, it's it's so interdisciplinary and it's so their languages are so different. You know, I'm always wondering. You know, if I was, you know, if someone, if a pure biologist, was to get this paper or something, they they might not understand this. So, just in terms of judging science, and and, and you probably you know this better than 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 and me for sure. Do they do their best to to, to bring in cross expertise when they see this? And I mean, they would imagine they would have to, correct? It's or, or uh, you know, it just seems that nowadays when you're melding together a lot of different fields, including math. And, and things that are, I feel like, thinking a completely different way. Um, I'm hoping that actually being done. So, yeah, I, I think this is a, it's a very good um, issue, uh, you know, generally, and not, not just in the computational mathematical field, in, in biology now, where you have cross-disciplinary um, uh, components to papers. And, uh, you know, that is a challenge for editors and reviewers and um you know they don't always get that uh um uh right uh you know i i I can also speak because i'm an editor for a for a journal it can be hard to find reviewers and sometimes you need to go and seek reviewers who have quite different expertise that can be complementary um and you can, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a bit, uh, it's a bit, it's a bit tricky uh, to have. I think particularly with the modelling area at the moment, because it is such a gulf in language to have something that um, uh, can really be understood by both uh, communities. And you do. I do feel that the you know one of the problems the modelers have is that it's often a, 
they're just talking within their own community. Um, uh, but equally, the problem that biologists have is that, you know, still mostly for us, the, models, the model is like, you know, figure seven, a nice picture. Uh-huh. And it's not really a proper formal model that is mathematically valid and, and uh, you know, can be used to explain um, different scenarios and to make predictions. Um, so, you know, we, yeah, we're going to need to, to work on, it's like any new thing that comes up, you know, there are going to be some mistakes initially by reviewers or, or editors who don't understand, or indeed the, the participants, the scientists who don't properly understand the, the subject. Um, but I do think it's, this is something that is now, you know, ready for the prime time. And, and then, you know, people will have to make the effort to, to understand these approaches. Austin, real quick, I, I got to sneak in a question well, before I mean, that's we good uh, to hear. Bef- before we move on to the to the last part of the yeah. show. Um, it, it, there's, it seems to me in looking at this science paper of yours that um, I don't know. I I feel like cheer the GSK three to uh, uh, kind the inhibitor. Um, mm-hmm. That it seems to be like sort of essential here like the, the one of the you know almost as important as lift if not more i it seems to be that mm-hmm. cheer and and you know we use it to pattern dopamine cells as well so it's mm-hmm. like what is going on with cheer and when and you know chris and i practically talk about this every podcast about what is up with the wind it seems to be involved in hair follicle and self-renewal and patterning of dopamine neurons is what can't cheer do and it's i'm just wondering like what's going on with this pathway and why is it so you know multifaceted i i'm just wondering do you, what's your sense of the, uh, well, you know, multifaceted is the word. There's a there's a review of a few years ago that talks about GSK3 as a multifaceted kinase. Yeah, and and there are uh, there's two components to really to this. Firstly, GSK3 does have have many targets in the cell, and, and people, you know, developmental and stem cell biologists, unfortunately just think GSK3 means wind and it's more complicated than that right. and you know all you have to know is that GSK3 directly regulates MIG okay. and, and destabilizes MIG to realize it can be doing a lot in the cell it's nothing to do with the wind pathway right. having said that in the context of mouse ES cells and purely when they're in the ES cell ground state because it changes completely as soon as they start to differentiate. Then it GSK3 inhibition acts mainly, but not entirely, but mainly. The really critical thing it does is through TCF3, mm. which is through beta-catenin. And, and the reason the effect is so powerful in mouse ES cells is because TCF3 is the, the major factor that shuts down the pluripotency circuitry. Um, so, you know, a TCF, in all, all the screens that we have done, TCF3 always comes out as the top hit as a factor that uh, um, is driving ES cells into differentiation. Mm. So, so you mean, you're, but you're right. What you say, Chiron, on mouse ES cells is... Uh, 
comparable in many ways to to lift in its effects mm. even though it's acting through a quite different pathway and the two of them to, together uh are pretty much as good as it, it gets yeah um so well that, but then what we have to bear in mind is that as soon as cells enter into differentiation then what gsk inhibition does in addition to affecting mic and gen and other things it will activate canonical TCFs mm -hmm. uh, such as LEF1 and they activate genes like uh, Brachiori and they'll that's the component that will be uh, I think mainly uh, involved in things like your dopaminergic differentiation mm -hmm. um, so it's it's a you know like any uh, signaling pathway the outputs will change as the cell state changes um, Great. That's that's pretty uh, much the, what the other point. The other point I should say that people uh, also don't always understand is GSK three is far more potent than Wnt, uh, and and the reason for that in mouse CSRs anyway we think is also because it's doing things in addition to TCF three, mm -hmm. but also because it um, it's acting downstream uh, of of the receptor. And so when you use a GSK3 inhibitor, you bypass some of the feedback systems that would right. normally uh, attenuate wind signal. Hmm. Yeah, you, the, the and that may also be why in your systems it's more powerful and effects you might see by adding recombinant winds. The, the point being, though, shear or Chiron does not yeah. equal wind signaling. I absolutely, mean, it's, absolutely. And, and, it, 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 it kind of it includes wind signals, sure. but it's doing more. And I, th I think people have tunnel vision, especially I like to call them the, the black magic artists of differentiation, who are <laughs> who are trying to to make uh, to make their best recipes for for their food. Uh, are are when they think wind, they just, oh, we just throw shear on, and and I I just you know. It doesn't equal wind. Uh, it's doing a lot of other things, and you you know it's. Uh, I guess it's just a, a caution out there that uh, it's not it's not a, it's not just winds you're getting or wind signal drive. So it's important that you that you mention that. Okay, so uh, just to wrap it up, um, we're gonna skip the where's the beef question and go straight to a funny story. Do you have any uh, funny stories you like to share with the audience? Do I have any funny, <laughs> funny stories? <laughs> I think I think uh, my postdocs would say I'm far too serious uh, <laughs> for, for uh, funny stories, but um, yeah, I, I have to admit I was uh, amused to uh, to hear that uh, Raj was uh, a candidate to be a future president of your country. Yeah, so, uh, so for everyone Katapa. out there, uh, you remember Raja Katapa was on the show. He was a he was a postdoc, right, Austin, in your lab. Yeah, and then uh, actually a very stellar academic record, Raj, and then decided that he would enter into the foray of American US politics to to bring some shed some light in the world of politics and, and get stuff done in Congress. So uh, I just wanted to uh, inject to people remember who Raj is. So so you learned about this. Not, did you learn about it from Raj or did you did you read about this somewhere? I uh, no, I learned about this from uh, uh, my postdocs had found out about it. I mean, you know you young guys use all this sort of, you know, uh, social media stuff. So they they found out. They it was the talk of the lab. I was probably the last person to find <laughs> out. But uh, 
Yeah, I, I think he might even have approached one of them for some money or something, a donation <laughs> to his cause. Or <laughs> He definitely approached us for some money for his cause. Yeah, well, that's probably... That's, yeah. I mean, um, just to, just to speak on that for a minute. Do you? I mean, what, what's your what's your what's your sense of a scientist in in politics? You know, I, do do you feel that they're training? I mean, you know Raj, and you know his way of thought, and you know his uh, training. Do you think that level of thought, you know, the way they think, uh, could could be useful in a setting? Uh, I always say that if you you know the people in Congress are, I mean, at least in this country, we don't really think. So I don't really know how. <laughs> having someone who thinks really well will help. But, I mean, you, you know Raj and his, his way of thought. Do you think that he might be able to bring something to the table that might help get a point across? Um, <laughs> well, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know how, <laughs> how Raj will, will uh, uh, survive in the world of, uh, of uh, uh, politics. Um, I'm sure he'll get his point across at some levels, but you know, there, there may also be a point at which people just stop listening. Well, um, there's also the fact I, I do that think, yeah, scientists. Sorry, get, I know there's also the fact that uh, postdocs and scientists tend to get stuff done, whereas our Congress isn't really getting anything done at this point. So uh, yeah. there's that inherent conflict right there. So. Uh, we wish him the best, and uh, I know the first round was not successful, but hopefully uh, we could get him in there sooner than later. Uh, so I think we'll, we could just put that uh, issue to bed and move on to uh, a quick ramp because we're running out of time. And um, I just proposed that we ran about uh, some of these uh, fake conferences where it's not really about the science, but you know, you get invitations to come and speak at a conference, and I'm sure you get them all the time, Austin. Where uh, yeah. it doesn't, it's sort of like a rant. You're like, who are these people, and what's the? I recognize maybe one of the names, and it it seems not to be about the science, but about generating revenue for either the hotel or the organizing conference group, and it just seems to be like a a new thing that maybe since 2000. 2010, I've been uh, noticing that there are these sort of fake conferences or just sort of, they're not really scientific conferences as much as they are money makers. And that's my rant, <laughs> essentially. It's, I don't know uh, what your feelings are. I, I, al I almost thought about going to one just to see what the hell it's about. You know, I yeah. mean, like, I, I always thought it just like, is this real? Am I going to show up and there's going to be no one there? Or 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 is this actual uh, a scientific dissemination? I mean, I don't know, Austin. I mean, do you? I mean, I'm sure you're getting. You, I'm sure you're getting invited to conferences yeah, that yeah, are yeah. you know that are but, that are that are well respected as well. And I mean, you must have a way to judge which is real and which is not. But I mean, what? Does, yeah. Well, if I get invited to some you know conference about medical devices or epidemiology, <laughs> even though they've given me a keynote uh, talk, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to go. <laughs> and I, if I were you, I wouldn't go either because, you know, you go there and, uh, uh, you know, you think you're getting all expenses paid and you won't be getting anything. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the other thing, too, right? You fly out there and they're going to take care. And next thing you know, you're stuck with a bill for $5,000 yep. and you really didn't advance your career or anyone else's because there's no real good substance. But I, I feel like this pay... This this whole phenomena now is, is, is in science, not just in conferences, Joseph, but it's also with publications. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, with a lot of these journals that are just popping up and pay an exorbitant amount of money to publish your paper. Um, so this pay to publish or pay to talk 
at conferences, if you will, is is in science now, and you just got to be careful for, for to. Yeah, yeah, but come on, you got to be a pretty sad scientist if you need to pay to get your paper published. I totally agree with you, but I'm telling you, there are people that are doing this, and I mm-hmm. I, I, I don't I, I agree with that statement 100. percent But I mean, there are people preying on these sad these sad people, and it's uh. In one in one aspect, you can say, well, they they're getting the money, and on the other side, I say it's it sucks for those people that are just falling into that trap because I think some people are just really trying to advance their career, right? And maybe maybe they don't have the best advice or best mentor, and they think that I just need to publish, or if I go to this meeting, I could put it on my CV, and it makes me makes me look more attractive to for another job, but. I, I I hope people aren't that naive. We're, I'll use the word naive in a different setting on this uh, show. Um, uh, but uh, you know, you know, I guess you just gotta you gotta use your brain and and just really think about what you're gonna do if you get these emails. Uh, you get them constantly. You just gotta hit delete and just 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 ignore it. I hit Marcus spam. But like it, it's true. Like the cost of publishing is five thousand papers, and I don't think people realize outside science that you know. Uh, PIs, heads of labs have to shell out a lot of money. They charge you for color images on your paper. And, you know, the, the journal charges you the costs of them printing your paper. Um, so it could get really expensive. And, um, you know, since these advanced careers, people are willing to pay lots of money just to get it out there. So, uh, and that's not limited to conferences either. So, uh, it gets, pretty expensive and you never know where this money's like is it worth it yeah well that's the thing where's the money going yeah you know? yeah so who knows but anyway that's a whole nother thing so let's let's just end uh thanks so much austin for taking out the time i know you're busy uh yeah. really appreciate the uh insight and for me for somebody who who who's fascinated and, and really studies uh wants to understand just pure developmental biology it gives me hope to see someone like yourself publishing high impact papers describing that actual event and it doesn't necessarily have to be we created a new recipe to make heart cells um and because i think that you know it's important to understand biology just biology and uh i'm glad to see that you know it's like we always, I say in baseball in America, Derek Jeter played for one team and he never strayed. He always was with one team. It's nice to see that you've devoted your career to this, to this pluripotency idea and, and continue to go that route. So thank you for doing that and for, for your work. Thank you, guys. Good Have to a good, you. Thank you. All right. We'll end it there. Take care, Austin. See you. Yep.